Hi there. Welcome back to The Fray. You're about to listen to Episode 3 of Part 2 of the podcast series all about Socrates, entitled The Alpha Human. Part 1 was all about Socrates, the man. Part 2 is all about Socrates, the philosopher. So if you feel like doing some catch-up, feel free to listen to some of those previous episodes. If you want to jump right on in with me, I welcome you as we enter the fray. Let us start this episode with a little story time. The brief story I'm about to read to you was published in the early 1980s and was written by the British philosopher Derek Parfit. Note that this is a fictional story, a science fiction story to be precise. So if it sounds strange to you in parts, that's why. This story is taken from the book Reasons and Persons, from the section entitled What We See Ourselves to Be. You enter the Teller Transporter. You have been to Mars before, but only by the old method a spaceship journey taking several weeks. This machine will send you at the speed of light. You merely have to press the green button. Like others, you are nervous. Will it work? You remind yourself what you have been told to expect. When you press the button, you shall lose consciousness and then wake up at what seems a moment later. In fact, you shall have been unconscious for about an hour. The scanner here on Earth will destroy your brain and body while recording the exact states of all your cells. It will then transmit this information. Traveling at the speed of light, the message will take three minutes to reach the replicator on Mars. This will then create, out of new matter, a brain and body exactly like yours. It will be in this body that you shall wake up. Though you believe that this is what will happen, you still hesitate. But then you remember seeing your friend grin when at lunch today, you revealed your nervousness. As she reminded you, she has often been teletransported and there's nothing wrong with her. You press the button. As predicted, you lose and seem at once to gain consciousness, but in a different cubicle. Examining your new body, you find no change at all. Even the cut from this morning's shave is still there. Several years pass, during which you are often teletransported. You are now back in the cubicle ready for another trip to Mars. But this time, when you press the green button, you do not lose consciousness. There is a whirring sound, then silence. You leave the cubicle and say to the attendant, it's not working, what did I do wrong? It's working, he replies, handing you a printed card. This reads, the new scanner records your blueprint without destroying your brain or body. We hope that you will welcome the opportunities which this technical advance offers. The attendant tells you you are one of the first people to use the new scanner. He admits that if you stay for an hour, you could use the intercom to see and talk to yourself on Mars. Wait a minute, you reply. If I'm here, I can't also be on Mars. Someone politely coughs. A white-coated man who asks to speak to you in private. You go to his office, where he tells you to sit down and pauses. Then he says, I'm afraid that we're having problems with the new scanner. It records your blueprint just as accurately as you will see when you talk to yourself on Mars, but it seems to be damaging the cardiac systems which it scans. Judging from the results so far, though you'll be quite healthy on Mars, here on Earth you must expect cardiac failure within the next few days. The attendant later calls you to the intercom. On the screen you see yourself just as you do in the mirror every morning, but there are two differences. On the screen, you are not left-right-reversed. And while you stand there speechless, you can see yourself in the studio on Mars starting to speak. Has that got your mind working? I hope so. We will return to this story near the end of the episode. I wanted to get this out there so you would have it swirling around your head as we proceed to dive in to some more Socrates and his philosophy. In doing research for this episode, I came across a word that I hadn't seen before that has a familiar ring to it. Thanatology. I'll give you a second to see if you can come up with a definition for what it means. 
The internet defines thanatology as, quote, the scientific study of death and the losses brought about as a result. It investigates the mechanisms and forensic aspects of death, such as bodily changes that accompany death and the post-mortem period, as well as wider psychological and social aspects related to death, unquote. Thanatology. Interestingly Avenger-esque, isn't it? I actually had never heard the term before I googled study of death. A very timely word considering our current climate and the pop culture reference. I have a feeling you could cut through a lot of confusion in this definition by simply referencing Thanos from the Avengers movies. And it's strange that I hadn't heard of Thanatology as I'm kind of into the whole death thing. I'm not saying I keep dead things in jars and wear black all the time. My interest has always been more of the timid type of fascination, like Proust or Kierkegaard, living quiet lives of desperation, fixated on my own demise. At some point in my formative years, I got it in my head that I was going to die young. Most of the movies I enjoy have a component of loss and death to them, as does my music. Now I have dismissed this interest in death as a morbid curiosity, but my fascination with death was, in large part, I know now, a manifestation of fear. It is not something that is rare, as I would venture that every single being capable of self-aware thought has had a healthy fear of themselves joining the great majority. We are born with an innate fear of death, the end, the big unknown. There are multitudinous ways that this fear has manifested itself over the course of human existence. Rites, sacrifices, tombs, funerals, ghosts, souls, angels, heaven, hell, gods, goddesses, The list could go on and on. All of these share the same quality. Humans dealing with death as a whole and the dread that comes with it inevitably being applied to the individual. We all die. We still do not know how to do it right. Instead of working to understand mortality and prepare ourselves for the inevitable end of our lives, we spend most of our life running from and dreaming of escape from ending up on the wrong side of the grass. It is an interesting idea to noodle around with. What exactly is there to be afraid of? As Socrates put it, quote, Now if you suppose there is no consciousness, but a sleep that is a sleep of him who is undisturbed, even by dreams, death will be an unspeakable gain. Unquote. Now this all came to mind yesterday for me as I was working. Now I work at a local fruit stand in my neighborhood. It is located at a busy intersection, and yesterday there were some street preachers proselytizing on the corner nearest to me while I was stacking some oranges. They were shouting promises of eternal life, and that led me to think of what that actually means. Living forever. I admit I can't even get my head around it. I've already lived for 47 years. I can't imagine how I will be feeling when I'm 47,000 years old, let alone 47 trillion billion million years old. I am, while not cheerfully, but at least optimistically, looking forward to an end to all this in the same way I look forward to a good night's sleep after a hard day's work. Does this mean I dislike hard work? Not at all. I appreciate a good day's effort and see the restfulness of sleep as a reward for all of that hard work. I view my life and inevitable death in a similar manner. I have not always felt this way. I was raised a Catholic with a very healthy dose of fear was injected into what I was told to believe in. I spent many evenings alone in my bed as a child, concerned for my immortal soul and how I could keep it from frying in a lake of fire for eternity. It was a very real anxiety for me. It was for everyone I knew and hung around with from the parish. For most of them, it was a good reason to keep going to Mass and learning how to avoid the ultimate calamity. For me, it just ended up creating more questions that eventually led me away from religion and into the waiting arms of philosophy. There is no doubt in my mind that my gravitation toward philosophy was to help assuage my fears concerning death. It turns out, I may have been on the right track. Simon Critchley, in his fantastic Book of Dead Philosophers, published in 2008, puts forth the theory of studying the manner of a philosopher's death as a way to understand how he lived, and in turn, we could learn a whole bunch about our conceptions and assumptions about what happens when we start to count worms. It is a remarkably eye-opening and often hilarious romp through the travails of the so-called big thinkers of their day. It also serves a serious purpose. To focus on the death of the mighty philosopher king 
we realize that everything we do is preparing for or running from dying. I'll let him take it from here. This is taken from the introduction to his book, Book of Dead Philosophers, which again came out in 2008. Quote, What defines human life in our corner of the planet at the present time is not just the fear of death, but an overwhelming terror of annihilation. This is a terror both of the inevitability of our own demise, with its future prospect of pain and possibly meaningless suffering, and the horror of what lies in the grave other than our own body nailed into a box and lowered into the earth. We are led, on the one hand, to deny the fact of death and to run headlong into the watery pleasures of forgetfulness, intoxication, and the mindless accumulation of money and possessions. On the other hand, the terror of annihilation leads us blindly into belief in the magical forms of salvation and promises of salvation offered by certain varieties of traditional religion and many New Age and some rather older age sophistries. What we seem to seek is either the transitory consolation of momentary oblivion or a miraculous redemption in the afterlife. It is in stark contrast to our drunken desire for evasion and escape that the ideal of the philosophical death has such sobering power. As Cicero writes, and this sentiment was axiomatic for most ancient philosophy and echoes down through the ages, to philosophize is to learn how to die. The main task of philosophy in this view is to prepare us for death, to provide a kind of training for death, the cultivation of an attitude towards our finitude that faces and faces down the terror of annihilation without offering the promises of an afterlife. Montaigne, the French philosopher, writes of the custom of the Egyptians who, during their elaborate feasts, caused a great image of death, often a human skeleton, to be brought into the banquet hall, accompanied by a man who called out to them, Drink and be merry, for when you are dead, you will be like this. Montaigne derives the following moral from his Egyptian anecdote. Quote, So I have formed the habit of having death continually present, not merely in my imagination, but in my mouth, unquote. To philosophize, then, is to learn to have death in your mouth, in the words you speak, the food you eat, and the drink that you imbibe. It is in this way that we might begin to confront the terror of annihilation, for it is, finally, the fear of death that enslaves us, leads us towards either temporary oblivion or the longing for immortality. As Montaigne writes, quote, he who has learned to die has unlearned how to be a slave, unquote. This is an astonishing conclusion. The premeditation of death is nothing less than the forethinking of freedom. Seeking to escape death, then, is to remain unfree and run away from ourselves. The denial of death is self-hatred. It was commonplace in antiquity that philosophy provided the wisdom necessary to confront death. That is, the philosopher looks death in the face and has the strength to say that it is nothing. The original exemplar of such a philosophical death is Socrates. In the dialogue Phaedo, he insists that the philosopher should be cheerful in the face of death. Indeed, he goes further and says that true philosophers make dying their profession. If one has learned to die philosophically, then the fact of our demise can be faced with self-control, serenity, and courage. Unquote. There is a lot to chew on in that introduction. For me, in part, it is comforting to find someone that can reinforce some of my decisions. It's also got that great allusion to Socrates and his place in the canon of thinkers who came up with thoughts that make a difference in our lives. The ability to die with self-control, serenity, and courage was something that Socrates and his fellow Greeks developed. But they were not alone. Many cultures were beginning to explore ways to deal with dying. It seemed to all hinge on one thing. The soul. I get asked from time to time where a novice to philosophy should start when wanting to begin to learn about humanity's love of wisdom, or lack of wisdom in some cases. Philosophy is so rich in ideas and personalities that have all been building since the Greeks started the party 2,600 years ago. It only makes sense to start at the beginning, but that can be daunting to most people as there is not just a mountain of information, but whole mountain ranges of writings and ideas to work your way through. I have never been successful with this type of advice. Start at the beginning is really just another way to say, don't even start. 
I kept reading, and thanks to the cognitive scientist Douglas Hofstetter, I found that there can be a better way to introduce philosophy to a newcomer. I simply ask, what do you mean when we say I? If the person I'm talking to is of a, a religious background, the answer is typically my soul. At which point I indicate that what is a fact in religion, the existence of an immortal soul, is not a settled subject in philosophy. I go on to say that if you're not willing to tackle this topic, then you really don't want to do or know about philosophy. In doing that, I'm channeling my inner Wittgenstein and ensuring another person doesn't succumb to wasting one's life philosophizing. If one is not able to challenge every belief and every notion, then what's the point? Stick with what got you here. Now, for me, the question is more than just a filtration system. It is the very core question that the foundation of our conception of philosophy is based on. Note that I said our conception, a modern one. I'm not saying that the Greeks felt this way or the ancient Egyptians or the Chinese of Confucius's day. In almost all ancient cases, there was some reference to a soul. Even the agnostic pre-Socratics, at least some of them, believed that part of them, the non-physical part, what they called the psyche or psychos or what we call soul, was real. With only very small exceptions, the belief in a soul, typically a mortal one, remember, mortal, not immortal, was the overriding belief of humanity forever. The unexplainable parts of our existence, stuff like knowledge, memory, emotions, thoughts, and dreams, have been regulated to a catch-all called many things, but identified most commonly in the West as the soul. It is very analogous to a word that is used in place of soul quite a bit by us in the modern world, consciousness. For most of our history, humanity believed the motive force behind life, the soul or consciousness, whatever you call it, died when your body died. As societies started to form, they began furtive attempts to build on the idea of the soul. In ancient Mesopotamia, chronicled in works such as Gilgamesh, dating back to at least 2100 BC, they have characters attempting to attain physical immortality. There is little talk of a soul, separate and immortal, that lives on past death. A small amount of metaphysical life force is retained by the Mesopotamians in the form of ancestor worship. In the burgeoning Judaic culture, they were also on board the soul train. Like everyone else, the early Jews believed in a soul that perished along with the body. As societies continued to progress and get more affluent, you begin to see some inkling of life after death. The ancient Chinese and Egyptians, around the same time as the Mesopotamians, cleaved their soul in two. In the case of the Chinese, their version of the soul is split upon death. One part, the lower soul, perishes at death. The higher soul, called the Han, which contains all the higher functions we talked about earlier, knowledge, emotion, stuff like that, survives death and is part of their ancestor worship. The ancient Egyptians also split their souls into two parts. One called the Ka stays near the body, while the other part, the Ba, travels to the underworld. Both of these examples are just beginning to explore the key factor for us modern folks when it comes to comprehending the soul, that of immortality. And that brings us to the ancient Greeks. For it is widely believed that the current understanding of the soul that most of us have was established amongst the grapevines and olive trees of the attic. Over time, the soul, which was viewed by most as sort of a temporary software that expires when its hardware does, begin to take on a different form. The soul goes from temporary operating system to an immortal entity that transcends space and time. The person most responsible for this transformation? Probably Socrates. Now, why probably? Because most of what is written about what Socrates thought about the soul is mired deep within the Socrates problem, defined as the fact that Plato is responsible for writing down all of Socrates' philosophical beliefs, and those beliefs change over time in the writings until they completely contradict themselves, and you don't know when the Socrates ends and the Plato begins. Eminent Socratic scholar Gregory Vlastos, in his biography of Socrates, tackles this problem head-on. He developed 10 theses on what makes Socrates the man different from Socrates the mouthpiece. He uses a different nomenclature, denoting early Socrates, middle Socrates, and late Socrates, but for our purposes, we're going to stick with Socrates the man 
and Socrates the mouthpiece. This sort of conflation of mouthpiece and man led Paul Johnson in a different book on Socrates to come up with the portmanteau platsock, half Plato, half Socrates. This platsock character is a transition for the dialogues as it begins to entertain ideas and theories that directly contradict what has been presented earlier. Keep in mind, all of these works were written by Plato, but there is a concerted effort in the early dialogues to present Socrates as himself, or at least the best representation of Socrates, the man that Plato could come up with. Over time, for unknown reasons, Plato veers from his adherence to the historical beliefs of his mentor and turns instead to his own. But here's the rub. He never stops using Socrates as his mouthpiece. He never stops and states, that was his idea, now this is what I think about it. There is no greater example of the Socrates problem than when dealing with the question of what happens at the time of death. The second of Vlastos's 10 theses that differentiate the two types of Socrates is focused directly on that question. The thesis is, quote, Socrates, the mouthpiece, has a grandiose metaphysical theory of separately existing forms and of a separable soul, which learns by recollecting pieces of its prenatal knowledge. Socrates, the man, has no such theory, unquote. He goes on to give an example of what Socrates, the mouthpiece, has to say about the soul. Quote, I'll move directly to Thesis 2, the most powerful of the ten, as I shall try and show the irreconcilable difference between Socrates the man and Socrates the mouthpiece could have been established by this criterion even if it had stood alone. In the dialogues of the mouthpiece period, Plato constructs a boldly speculative metaphysical system whose twin foundations are the transmigrating soul and its ontological correlate, the transcendent form. We can pinpoint the entry of the former into the corpus. And now, Vlastos is going to read from the Platonic dialogue, The Mino, with Socrates narrating. Quote, I have heard men and women who are wise in things divine saying what? Something true and glorious. What were they saying? Who were they? Priests and priestesses who make it their business to give the reason to the rites they perform. This is what they declare. Man's soul is deathless. At times it comes to an ending called death. At times it is reborn. It is never destroyed. Unquote. Now back to Vlastos. Here for the first time in Plato's work, we meet this strange visionary doctrine that the soul has many births and many deaths, and that all knowledge is innate, all learning in our present life being but the recovery of what our soul carries along from its primordial past. We go back to the Mino here. Socrates continues, quote, As the soul is deathless and has been born many times and has seen all things both here and in Hades, there is nothing it has not learned. All nature is akin and the soul has learned everything. Nothing prevents us once we have recollected one thing, which is what men call learning, to rediscover everything else ourselves, if we are valiant and not giving up on inquiring. For all inquiring and learning is recollecting. Unquote. Now back to Vlastos. Nothing remotely of this sort is stated or implied or even hinted at in any dialogue which precedes the Mino. And once it comes in, it comes to stay. It saturates the Phaedo, persists in the Phaedrus, and is displayed in great style in the late dialogues like the Timaeus. How alien this new story is to Socrates the man's whole way of thinking we can judge from the way he refers to the soul in one of the earliest dialogues, the Crito. Again, he's going to quote Socrates here, quote, Is life then worth living for us once we have suffered the ruin that is damaged by injustice and benefited by justice? Or should we think inferior to the body that is in us, whatever it be, that has to do with justice and injustice? Unquote. Now back to Vlastos. That phrase, that in us, whatever it be, is symptomatic of the metaphysically reticent temper of the speaker's conception of the soul. For Socrates the man, our soul is ourself, whatever that might turn out to be. That is the I of psychological function and moral imputation. The I in I feel, I think, I know, I choose, I act. For he believes, he says, my soul believes. When he says that someone's soul is wicked, 
we know much of what he means. That person is wicked. How much more he means, we do not know. He doesn't say. To that question, he never speaks. The questions, is the soul material or immaterial? Is the soul mortal or immortal? Will the soul be annihilated when the body rots? Those questions are never on his argumentative agenda. The first question he never addresses at all. He does allude to the second at the close of his trial in the apology, but only to suggest that this is rationally undecidable. Both opinions, total annihilation or survival in Hades, are left open. Socrates the man reveals his faith in the soul's survival. Socrates the mouthpiece declares it. Unquote. So according to Vlastost, Socrates believed, had faith in, and most certainly hoped that he had a soul and that it was immortal. But he just doesn't know. An interesting point to be made here is to hearken back a bit to episode one of part two, when I was attempting to determine what is philosophy and who started it. I spent probably too much time on dates and names, so I won't do that again. What I would like to bring to light is the fact that in all those other thought movements we listed, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, and all the others, they all started to talk about the immortality of the soul at around the same time. In fact, it wasn't until most of them adopted the immortality of the soul into their belief system that the religion took off and spread. It wasn't until immortality was promised that people started to pay attention to what they were trying to sell. To put it another way, the adoption of the promise of an immortal soul was the answer humanity was searching for to help them with their fear of death. If one were to look at the immortal soul memetically, meaning as a meme, a viral idea that spreads, it kind of makes sense that everyone would be grooving to the immortal soul train at around the same time. And can you blame the people of the day for jumping whole hog under the bandwagon of forever and ever and ever and ever and ever? You get the point. For most of humanity, this type of option was reserved only for kings and gods. Now, what was once only for the ultra-elite had become egalitarian. Everlasting life could be yours, thanks to the immortal soul. And not just any type of immortal soul, as there were many to choose from. Plato's soul involved reincarnation, transcendence, and a complete abrogation of the physical body. Buddha offered an escape from an afterlife designed by the likes of Plato. Ancestor-based belief systems, such as the Chinese, cast the soul as immaterial and mostly educational and ceremonial. But one view of the soul stuck with us in the West. In this view, the soul is immortal and contains all the good that makes humanity human containing the virtues, knowledge, personality, memories, all that answers the question posed by Douglas Hofstetter. What do we mean when we say I? For Socrates, the answer to that question is my soul. Now, there are a couple of points I want to make about Socrates and his belief in the immortal soul. First, I want to draw your attention to the key facet of his belief. That facet is his uncertainty. Socrates was able to use his great skills and discipline to overcome the need for certainty. This is a very important fact of Socrates, the philosopher. He is not seeking answers. In most things that interest him and fall under his inquiry, there are no answers. His way is the way of seeking wisdom, and in the end, that wisdom is really just humility, the willingness to let the mystery be. Socrates believed the soul of a human being was all the good parts of us. He believed that the better we listened to our soul, the faster we could dispense with the vice-ridden physical desires and reach true happiness in the good life. If, and for him it was an if, his soul is immortal, the better he lives his life now ensures a purer, more virtuous immortality. And that's it. That is really all Socrates had to say about the soul, other than revealing how much fun it would be to accost the great thinkers of yore in a place like Hades, where they cannot put a man to death because he annoys them. Now, Paul Johnson, in his biography of Socrates, takes it a step further and connects the soul of Socrates 
with the soul as we know it today. This is what Paul Johnson has to say about it. Quote, Socrates' notions of the body and soul and of their relationship became, in time, standard. Before his day, the word psyche had existed, had indeed been in use for perhaps a millennium, but it meant something quite different and nebulous. In Homer, souls are rather like ghosts and disappear if we try and touch them. They are doppelgangers of the dead and live in Hades. This was probably how most people in Socrates' day saw the soul, if they thought about it at all. Within a generation or two after Socrates' death, however, his idea of the soul, in all its powerful simplicity, unlike the complex, precarious soul of Plato, had been accepted by a wide range of intelligent, educated Greeks. A couple centuries later, it fitted perfectly with Christ's teachings and so padded in the moral conceptions of Christianity and has been the received concept of the soul ever since among civilized people. If you and I say soul, we mean what Socrates meant, and he gave it that meaning. Unquote. That's a big bite for me to take right there. I have to admit, before starting this podcast, the idea that Socrates was not only part of, but more likely the progenitor of major facets of the Christian religion, I'd have told you that you were crazy. I guess you got to chalk it up to book learning, the more you know, right? But how about that idea? The soul as we know it was defined by the beliefs of our happy, ugly alpha human. I have literally been taking a break from working on this to absorb it all. It is quite a paradigm shift for me. Good thing, because things pretty much stayed the same when it came to the ideas of the soul for a while. Judeo-Christian belief absorbs the Socratic idea of a soul. Socrates and almost all of his fellow Greek, Jewish, Roman, Christian, and Islamic thinkers become what is called dualists, for they believe that there are two parts that work together to produce the human experience, the flesh and blood body and the immortal soul. Now, I did just say almost all thinkers had jumped on the philosophical immortal soul train. Only a very few stood up to the orthodoxy that solidified around what Socrates had been merely hoping was true. As Johnson just stated, it only took a couple of generations for the Socratic soul to ossify into belief, and a few centuries later, it became a fact that ruled the Western world for almost 2,000 years. So you may be asking yourself something. Today's modern world doesn't seem to be ruled over by secular overlords, especially in the world of science and philosophy. You'd think it would be difficult to locate a scientist or philosopher that would describe themselves as a dualist, as in believing in two distinct parts of a human, a material mortal body and an immaterial immortal soul. Now, if you thought that, you'd be correct. There are not a ton of mainstream scientists and philosophers today that call themselves dualists. So what are they? Well, it turns out that the ancient Greeks are the gift that keeps on giving. About a generation or so after Plato was finished playing with his dialogues, a philosopher named Epicurus hit the scene in ancient Greece. He was quite popular and was forming his own completely independent mode of thought as it concerned questions of knowledge, reality, and existence. Now, you probably recognize his name. It is the root of the word Epicurean. This word has a connotation of hedonism and avarice, of overindulgence and gluttony. In this case, much as was the case with the man Hector and the word Hector, the word Epicurean bears little resemblance to the man Epicurus. Epicurus was extremely abstemious in the traditional Greek way and practiced a sort of philosophy that would have made Socrates proud. But that is about it. Everyone else, from Plato and Aristotle to pretty much the present day, loathed the man and his teachings so much that they worked tirelessly to besmirch him, his teachings, and his students. They made up stories about Epicurus, created whole myths around the man and his philosophy. And why, you ask? I mean, there was nothing overly controversial in Epicurus's teaching, at least on the face of it. He worked in a type of thought that relied heavily on the pre-Socratics and their observation and deductive skills and built on many of their theories. Theories that would become the object of a campaign to wipe them from existence in the coming centuries. So what were his crimes? Well, he was labeled 
the prince of atheism by early Christians, so that may give you some idea. Epicurus believed that the soul was made of atoms and died when the body died. That's right, atoms. He was not the founder of atomic theory. That happened a generation previous, thanks to Democritus. No, Epicurus just took that theory and started asking the question of why we would need more of an explanation than that. The body and soul are one. They are not two separate entities connected. They are made up of the same material, behave in the same manner, and exist as one inseparable unit. There is no body without the soul and no soul without the body. Try substituting the word consciousness for soul and take a listen. The body and consciousness are one. They are not two separate entities connected. They are made up of the same material, behave in the same manner, and exist as one inseparable unit. There is no body without the consciousness. There is no consciousness without the body. So I guess, to Epicurus, we are all made of stars. With this stunning revelation, and it came out in 300 BC or so, Epicurus offered a competing theory to the dualism that permeated almost all facets of thought at the time. His theory is now called materialism. We are flesh, blood, bone, neurons, and synapses, and that is all we are. If that material fails, we fail. Our atoms are scattered into the universe to be repurposed in some way or just fall into an eternal entropy just like everything else in the universe. It was now dualism versus materialism. If you were a betting man, you would have, for most of human history, placed the smart money on dualism. It has had the upper hand in the worlds of science and philosophy and in the mass consciousness of the Western people for millennia, during which the dualist camp perpetrated an unending war against the materialist that we are still very much fighting today. Now, while materialists have made many successes in the past 500 years or so, as a testament to that, today, most of the scientific and philosophic thinkers are materialistic. But the battle still rages on as most of the population are dualists. So time to pause for a restatement of stuff, as this particular episode is particularly full of insights for me. Okay. So the Greeks were not only responsible for the dualist framework of our Western society in the form of Socrates and Plato, but thanks to Epicurus, they also founded the competing and now dominant, at least intellectually speaking, theory of a materialist concept of consciousness. Just when you think those ancient Greeks don't have any surprises left, right? Once altercations between the Epicureans and everyone else started, and it started right away, I mean, Epicurus is recorded as calling his rivals jellyfish, illiterate, frauds, and trollops. The dualists went to the mattresses and dealt almost a death blow to the materialist system of Epicurus. The Dark Ages? Ever hear of it? Well, a lot of that was a consequence of the campaign that started against Epicurus, that of wiping out any competing theories to knowledge, reality, and existence. The former Librarian of Congress and fantastic author in his own right, Daniel Borston, diplomatically calls this time from roughly the fall of the Roman Republic in the aughts of the new millennia, so right around when Jesus was born, through to the Renaissance in the 15th century as the Great Interruption. I can't count the amount of times I have pondered the thought of how much further we could have advanced as a species if the work that the ancient Greeks had been left alone to grow without such a great interruption. The main reason I believe that great progress would be made in place of the stolidness of the Middle Ages is that One of the major driving forces that propelled the Renaissance forward out of just Catholic idolatry like Michelangelo and into the proto-scientific world of da Vinci was the recently discovered, this is the late 1300s AD, epic poem of a Roman writer named Titus Carus Lucretius. The poem is called On the Nature of Things. Now you may be saying, hey, how can one poem be responsible for so much? And normally I would agree. But what if I told you that this Roman poet, Lucretius, wrote this poem all about the philosophy and teachings of an ancient Greek philosopher named Epicurus? That's right. After 1,400 years of being assaulted and scrubbed from the very vellum of the pages of history, one of the last remaining copies of On the Nature of Things was procured and passed around by all the big names of the Renaissance who credited its beautiful, clear thinking 
to allow them to see more of the world as it is to them and not as it was to those who controlled the message. Materialism versus dualism, right? The battle continues. And as we approach the 1600s, people started asking questions, coming up with their own theories, testing these theories, recording and reviewing the results, and validating and discarding theories. Now, you may recognize this little ditty as the scientific method. Key on that word, method. Science is not a belief. It is a method, a set of steps to validate assumptions. A heuristic developed in the consciousness of the human mind, kickstarted back to life by the Renaissance to provide an alternative to the current societal operating system known as religion. A competing theory to the immortal soul was taking root. Questions were being asked. Thought experiments were being conducted. Arguments were being validated and discarded. Similar to ancient Greece, the healthy open debate amongst equals quickly bore fruit, and the community of people using science to understand the world started to wonder if there was even a soul at all. At least an immortal soul that either plays the harp or burns in hell, or an immortal soul that manifests in different physical forms based on the way they lived occupying their previous physical form, or a soul escaping this wheel of misery by dissolving itself into nothingness. What if soul was just part of nature, intrinsically connected with our physical form, so when that form expires and disintegrates, so does the entity that was the soul? No connection, no soul. What was the soul then disperses into the universe, adding to its ever-expanding humanity and knowledge. Well, at least that's what Spinoza thought back in the early 1600s. And so began the long, steady climb of validated results based on the scientific method. Where we find ourselves today is, at least in philosophy, a complete sea change in the understanding of the soul. The short answer is that most philosophers don't believe in souls. They believe that all that makes us human is contained in the physical, material being of our person. This theory of human consciousness is called materialist because it stipulates, similarly to Epicurus, that consciousness does not need more than what has already been given. For example, everything we need for the universe to exist is supported by the material world. Newton's laws, Einstein's relativity, in most cases have been proven correct. In the case of Einstein, some of the theories were so ahead of his time that we have yet to devise a proper experiment to pursue validation. In every case of relativity that we have been able to test, Einstein has been proven to be spot on, 100% accurate. Talk about a brain. Materialists ask the simple question, if the material world is good enough for the entire universe to exist, why is it not good enough for humanity? Now, that question was certainly not asked very much back in ancient Greece and for most of recorded history. But then materialism did unseat a theory that had been in place from before there was even the concept of time. It is at once one of the largest upsets in the history of thought, a testament to the power of validating one's assumptions with a repeatable method, and an amazing example of societal evolution. It's always the little things that help bring stuff into perspective. I was about to say the belief in the soul, which if I was back in Greece, I would not have used that word belief unless I was Socrates. The sentence would be much shorter, the soul. And for most of history, using the word belief could constitute a lack of 100% faith and be construed as impiety. And let's just say I would watch out for friends bearing cups of hemlock. The soul became the belief in the soul. And in philosophy, it became known as dualism meaning that there are two parts to you, your body and your soul. One of them is at the very core of what makes you you, and the other is just a bag of water, fat, calcium, carbon, and protein. Materialist or dualist, which one are you? Do you believe in souls or do you not believe in souls? For years, I have focused on this question as the crux of my searching. It seemed to be, to me, the most established dichotomy between philosophers. But the beauty of continuous inquiry is that I was able to stumble on a deeper explanation of this whole question of the soul. Now, we've already established that both sides are attempting to assuage their fear and dread of death. Breaking it down, you can see almost an Oreo cookie situation happening. One of the wafers of the cookie is represented by Epicurus and his beliefs that there is nothing after death, that we are one entity made up of all the material needed for not only physical life, but for consciousness as well. 
Now, on the other wafer of the cookie is the realm of religion and dualism, most notably Western religion, where the orthodoxy is rooted in the certainty of the immortal soul. There are no other options offered or accepted. It is a known fact of most religions that the soul exists and is everlasting. In the middle, making up the creamy, sweet stuffing of our Oreo is Socrates. He stands alone with his stance of certainty in his uncertainty. There may be life after death, there may be a mortal soul, and there very well be nothing after death save for eternal, dreamless sleep. Now, while for most of us, not picking a side is thought of as a weak position, I mean, make up your mind, but what if there is no discernible answer? In each of these instances, Epicurus, Socrates, and religion, there has been no definitive fact-based proof of any of it. Despite all the optimism, we are not much further along in proving a materialist conception of consciousness than were the ancient Greeks, and religion hasn't offered any proof, but that is to be expected as proof is the enemy of faith. So that leaves us still wanting more, still wanting an answer. How many of you enjoy going to movies that do not resolve? Not too many of us. But that is what Socrates is offering us with his belief in the immortal soul. Now, what history remembers and put to use in that sentence were the immortal and the soul, when in fact the important part of the sentence is not those words, but the word believe. And I don't mean this in an underdog makes good sort of sense, like the movie Rudy or Rocky. You gotta believe. I mean believe in the sense that it is an admission that one does not know the answer, but hopes, has faith in, believes that they are right. This type of belief intimates the one crucial part that all the believers in the Socratic soul that preceded Socrates, the simple fact that one does not know the answer, and that is okay. I used to think that this discussion on dualism versus materialism and the fruits that could be derived from participating in it would give me some massive insight into human knowledge and behavior. And in some ways it did, just not in the way I expected, but in typical, fantastic, Socratic irony, the answer I got for all my questions was just another question. So the question I started asking was the one I stated earlier from the cognitive scientist, Douglas Hofstadter. What do we mean when we say I? To me, the crucial question is not between soul or no soul, or what happens when I die, but more foundational. The question for me is what makes me, me? What do I mean when I say I? Where did Jason come from? And so far, we've only been given one bite at the apple for most of the past 2,500 years in the form of dualism. But that is changing. That brings us full circle back to that short story I read at the beginning of this episode. It was written in 1980 or so as a thought experiment investigating Mr. Parfit's particular philosophical specialty, one that he calls non-religious ethics. I think of this as a second bite at the apple, and so does Mr. Parfit. He says, quote, Some people believe that there cannot be progress in ethics, since everything has been already said. I believe the opposite. How many people have made non-religious ethics their life work? Before the recent past, very few. In most civilizations, most people have believed in the existence of a god or several gods. A large minority were, in fact, atheists, whatever they pretended. But before the recent past, very few atheists made ethics their life's work. Buddha may be among the few, as may be Confucius, and a few ancient Greeks and a couple of Romans. After more than a thousand years, there are few more between the 16th and 20th centuries. Hume was an atheist who made ethics part of his life work. Sidgwick was another. After Sidgwick, there were several atheists who were professional moral philosophers. But most of these did not do ethics. They did meta-ethics. They did not ask which outcomes would be good or bad, or which acts would be right or wrong. They asked and wrote about only the meaning of the moral language and the question of objectivity. Non-religious ethics has been systematically studied by many people only since about 1960. Compared with other sciences, Non-religious ethics is the youngest and least advanced, unquote. Now I want to read the Parfit science fiction story one more time. This time, I'll add the ending. Now, while you listen, ponder the consequences of this story and the issues it raises with your current conception of what happens when you die. 
And more importantly, what makes you, you? You enter the Teller Transporter. You have been to Mars before, but only by the old method. A spaceship journey taking several weeks. This machine will send you at the speed of light. You merely have to press the green button. Like others, you are nervous. Will it work? You remind yourself what you have been told to expect. When you press the button, you shall lose consciousness, and then wake up at what seems a moment later. In fact, you shall have been unconscious for about an hour. The scanner here on Earth will destroy your brain and body while recording the exact states of all your cells. It will then transmit this information. Traveling at the speed of light, the message will take three minutes to reach the replicator on Mars. This will then create, out of new matter, a brain and body exactly like yours. It will be in this body that you shall wake up. Though you believe that this is what will happen, you still hesitate. But then you remember seeing your friend grin when at lunch today, you revealed your nervousness. As she reminded you, she has often been teletransported and there is nothing wrong with her. You press the button. As predicted, you lose and seem to at once gain consciousness, but in a different cubicle. Examining your new body, you find no change at all. Even the cut from this morning's shave is still there. Several years pass during which you are often teletransported. You are now back in the cubicle ready for another trip to Mars, but this time, when you press the green button, you do not lose consciousness. There is a whirring sound, then silence. You leave the cubicle and say to the attendant, It's not working. What did I do wrong? It's working, he replies, handing you a printed card. The card reads, The new scanner records your blueprint without destroying your brain and body. We hope that you will welcome the opportunities which this technical advance offers. The attendant tells you you are one of the first people to use the scanner. He adds that if you stay for an hour, you can use the intercom to see and talk to yourself on Mars. Wait a minute, you reply. If I'm here, I can't also be on Mars. Someone politely coughs, a white-coated man who asks to speak to you in private. You go to his office where he tells you to sit down and pauses. Then he says, I'm afraid that we're having problems with the new scanner. It records your blueprint just as accurately as you will see when you talk to yourself on Mars, but it seems to be damaging the cardiac systems which it scans. Judging from the results so far, though you'll be quite healthy on Mars, here on Earth, you must expect cardiac failure within the next few days. The attendant later calls you to the intercom. On the screen, you see yourself just as you do in the mirror every morning. But there are two differences. On the screen, you are not left-right-reversed. And while you stand there speechless, you can see yourself in the studio on Mars starting to speak. Now, since your replica knows that you're about to die, he tries to console you with the same thoughts with which you recently tried to console a dying friend. It is sad to learn on the receiving end how unconsoling these thoughts are. Your replica then assures you that he will take up your life where you leave off. He loves your partner, and together they will care for your children. He will finish the book that you are writing. Besides having all your drafts, he has all your intentions. You must admit that he can finish your book as well as you could. All these facts console you a little. Dying when you know you shall have a replica is not quite as bad as simply dying. Even so, you shall lose consciousness forever.